if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Thanks for being a listener. And if you have any thoughts, any questions or comments, then send me an email to greg at consideringcatholicism.com. And please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And share it with your friends or on social media so that we can grow our audience and enlarge the conversation. Now, we've been doing a mini-series of episodes on the Eucharist as a part of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops' National Eucharistic Revival. And in today's episode, Corey and I had a conversation that brought together two things that we both really love, the Eucharist and the mid-20th century English writer J.R.R. Tolkien, author of Lord of the Rings and some other books. Now, a couple of months ago in one of our book club episodes, Corey and I talked about why Tolkien may well have been the most significant Catholic storyteller of the 20th century. You can listen to our reasons why in episode 31 in the archive. Tolkien was a very devout, daily mass-going Catholic. And in a few letters that he wrote to his son Christopher that were published after his death, he wrote about the significance of the Eucharist. In fact, he told his son that the Eucharist was the one great thing to love in this life. So, Corey and I talked about that idea, and I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. I've posted the original passages from these letters on the ConsideringCatholicism.com website with this episode, so you can go there to read them to give some context to what Corey and I are talking about. But let me just tease you with a couple of excerpts. Tolkien wrote his son that, Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the Blessed Sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all of your loves on earth. And then he went on to say that the only cure for sagging or fainting faith is communion. Though always itself perfect and complete and inviolate, the Blessed Sacrament does not operate completely and once and for all in any of us. Like the act of faith, it must be continuous and grow by exercise. Frequency is of the highest effect. Seven times a week is more nourishing than seven times at intervals. Now, in another letter to his son, Tolkien told him that the true church, quote, of which the Pope is the acknowledged head on earth, has as its chief claim that it is the one that has, and still does, ever defended the blessed sacrament, and given it most honor, and put, as Christ plainly intended, in the prime place. Feed my sheep was his last charge to St. Peter, and since his words are always first to be understood literally, 
I suppose them to refer primarily to the bread of life. It was against this that the Western European revolt, or Reformation, was really launched, and faith works a mere red herring. So, keeping those two quotes in mind, here are Corey and I talking about Tolkien's reasons for saying that the Eucharist is the one great thing to love on this earth. So, Corey, we are in this series of periodic episodes on the Eucharist, mm-hmm. and you and I had to introduce this series. We had a conversation where we talked about the Eucharistic revival, the three years of Eucharistic revival that the uh, Catholic bishops in the United States have called us to. And so we're doing some teaching and episodes on the Eucharist, and but we've also done, you and I have, uh, an episode on J.R.R. Tolkien yes. as a Catholic novelist, and we've also talked about the papacy. And Tolkien, as a fervent Catholic, actually brought a lot of these things together in his own life. I mean, mm-hmm. lived them out, and he actually said some things about them. And uh, we have this ama- amazing quote, uh, or a series of amazing quotes, but this one where he talks about how to, out of the darkness of his life, uh, he puts before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. Mm-hmm. So I thought that maybe we kind of pull a few of these conversational threads from some previous episodes together and talk a little bit about his idea that it is the one, you know, the one great thing to love on earth. Um, and, and for you as a Tolkienite, um, uh, Tolkien aficionado, whatever, whatever term you want to use. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so maybe you want to kind of lead off and, and just talk about what Tolkien said about the Eucharist. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so at, at the beginning of this quote, he's referring specifically to his life, the darkness of his life and, and how much frustrations that he experienced. Um, and I think that really is key to understand how important his faith in Christ it was to him and, and specifically his, his um, devotion to the Eucharist because he really did have a lot of frustration and suffering that started very early um, with the death of his father. And then when his mother uh, converted to the Catholic church, um, a lot of family drama and they were essentially disowned. um, And that's an even, was an even bigger deal back then than it would be today when it's a big enough deal, but it was essentially throwing them out on the street. And then later in his childhood, his mother died and he was raised as an orphan with his brother. Um, by by an oratorian priest um, who helped him essentially to uh, to reengage with that family that had rejected him and and to come at them from from love and charity rather than bitterness and resentment. Um, but then he faced plenty of other um, hardships in his life. He was a soldier in World War One and saw you know horrible things on that front. I mean, he was in the trenches yeah. at Verdun and all that kind of thing. Yeah, so I mean, absolute madness and, and chaos and slaughter um, in the war, and um, and he you know experienced poverty throughout his life um, and academic and professional setbacks and criticism. Yeah, let's talk about that for just a second because I think it's it's hard sometimes to look on Tolkien as this, you know, really significant 20th century writer, you know, so much success that his books have had, 
uh, and how kind of famous he is and admired he is now. And even I know you and I both love Oxford and we've mm-hmm. both been there. You've spent a lot of time there and I've been there a number of times and how great it is to go to the Eagle and Child pub where he used to hang out and just sort of, you know, enjoy the bait, ba- bask in the sort of mm-hmm. success and uh, legacy of Tolkien. And yet... Uh, he was not successful in his lifetime. No. So the books didn't really, I mean, the books were there, but they didn't take off and sell. Did They didn't make him rich while he was alive. No. And I mean, he, he had a hard time making ends meet really until towards the ends of his life when, uh, when the books had gained greater popularity. Um, he, he struggled with his finances a lot as an academic and an academic with, I believe, four children to support. Yeah. And I think I read somewhere, you know, I, I can't remember, you probably know better than I do, but something just kind of biographically about how he was always cold. You know, we, we, we go stroll through Oxford or Cambridge and we look how wonderful those, you know, old buildings were and they're so romantic, but he was physically sitting in these rooms at Oxford, you know, like freezing to death with eight sweaters on all the time. Right. Right. And, and if you go there today, actually a lot of those buildings don't have central heat. Um, but he, he also, you know, didn't become super popular all at once. And and a lot of uh, his peers, especially in in academia to this day are not big fans. I mean, well, quick, quick thing about Tolkien's poverty, right? mm -hmm. Just a fun anecdote about this. So, uh, you know, I had been to Oxford, you know, and been to the Eagle Child pub a number of times, but when my son, um, at a certain point I told him I was going to take him out for his first pint, Ah. but we had this trip (laughs) to the UK coming up. And I was going to bring him along for his first chance to go overseas. Mm -hmm. And I told him, uh, I'll buy you your first pint in the Eagle and Child pub uh, in in the little uh, Inklings room. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a little side room. And at the table, that's where you'll have your your first pint of beer. And so uh, we went there. And on, on the way, I thought, or before we left, I thought, well what beer was it that the Inklings drank? And so I wanted to research that because I wanted to get him his first pint and I wanted to order whatever sure. you know, brand of you know beer it was. And so I did, I probably wasted too much time <laughs> doing some Googling and, and emailing some people and trying to figure out what it was, what, what brand of beer they drank. Mm. And the best answer that I got from anybody who was a Tolkien expert is whatever was the cheapest and on sale (laughs) because they were always poor. And so they'd go like, what, what's the cheapest beer you have? And so when we got there, I ordered my son the cheapest, (laughs) (laughs) cheapest beer they had. That's what we drank. Uh, But, but he also, as you say, uh, faced a lot of academic approbation. In fact, I think he never got tenure. I'm not sure about that, but yeah. I I think I read one place that he kept getting passed over for tenure because as a Catholic, they wouldn't, they wouldn't recognize him. Yeah. I mean, certainly he wasn't positioned as, as a Catholic or, or, I mean, obviously he was a serious academic, a philologist, but, but all what his, his fame popularly came from, from his fantasy novels. Um, that, that wasn't the kind of profile that, that got you to be, you know, immensely popular among Oxford Dons. So anyway, um, not to say that Tolkien had a worse life than uh, other people. Sure, uh, listeners yeah. out here, we've all a lot of us have struggled with things, and a lot of people listening may have struggled with loss of family members and mm-hmm. financial struggles in their lives, and and you know professional struggles and health issues and whatever. But I think the important point is not that 
Tolkien was unique in that, but that his experience was universal, which makes this point more poignant. It's not like this guy was, you know, one of history's great martyrs. Mm -hmm. It's that he was an ordinary man who lived a very ordinary life full of, in a sense, very ordinary kinds of life struggles. And yet he says... That all of this is um, given meaning and and direction by the Eucharist, um, by Christ's presence there. Um, and, and he talks about in this quote that you find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, um, all the true way of your loves in the world, that, that all of these things, um, of course, because this is Christ, so it's Christ's fidelity, it's is his sacrifice, um, it's it's his honor, but it's also ordering everything else um, in his life around this and giving meaning to his to his suffering and to his ordinary life. One of the things I've always loved about this quote uh, and the part that you mentioned right here, the sentence where he talks about in it, you will find romance and glory and honor and fidelity and all the true way of all your loves on earth and more than that death. And I've shared this with other people where I've said, you know, when it comes to the story that the Eucharist is a story. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the gospel is a story. I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not, it's a true story, right? Right. Like to say it's a story is not to say that it's false, but it's a, it's an incredible narrative. The Bible is an incredible narrative. The gospel is an incredible narrative, right? Every time we recite uh, the Nicene Creed, we're telling a story of the, the you know, right. the God who incarnated himself, lived, died, suffered and rose again. And, and who commissioned us to, to commemorate that and to, and, and still lives and dies and, and is resurrected in in the, in the sacrifice of the Eucharist every time we do it. And in a sense, you know, when it comes to storytelling, and I don't to put words in his mouth, but I think he's, he's saying this is the greatest story ever told. When we, when we participate in the Eucharist, it is the greatest story. All that we love in other stories, uh, mm-hmm. romance and honor and glory and suffering and conflict and resolution, everything that's great that we love about stories is found in the Eucharist, in a sense, as the greatest story of all. And when it comes to telling to knowing something about stories, I would say that J.R.R. Tolkien knew something about stories. Yeah, absolutely. And Uh, for him, as one of the greatest storytellers, you know, perhaps the church has ever produced, for him to say, this is the greatest story. Yeah, well, and and to kind of unpack that a bit, in in the the Eucharist and the celebration of the Mass, every time that the elements are consecrated, we we experience it's made present, Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And of course, this this presence is the presence of the risen Christ. So we also experience his resurrection in the sacrament when it's consecrated on the altar. And so you have the main plot points, so to speak, of the story of Christ being, you know, tangibly and sacramentally before you in in the host and, and in the precious blood. Yeah, it's not so much that the Eucharist tells the greatest story ever told. And it does. And when he talks about it contains romance and glory and honor and fidelity and all of these things and death and suffering uh, and, and victory, those are the elements of story and they are the elements of, of the saving work of Christ in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, it is a story of great romance and fidelity and suffering and death. And it's a fantastic narrative. It's a true narrative, but to your point, it's not just that uh, that story is told in the Eucharist. It's that we enter into and participate in that story. Right. Well, and in the arc of the mass, you have the readings of scripture and the yep. liturgy of the word. So we do tell the story in Christ's words and in, in the word of God. And then it is sacramentally really made present. We go from the, the written word to the incarnate word. When the priest elevates the host, 
at that moment, all the the what was that line from the the one hymn? All the hopes and a uh, uh, little town oh, of Bethlehem. Sure. The hopes and fears of all the years uh, are met in thee tonight. And I've always, that line has always struck me as well. I love mm-hmm. him, uh, that hymn, that. Christmas Carol hymn, whatever yeah, yeah. it is. But what I've always loved about that is, you know, when the priest elevates the host of the Eucharist, consecrates it, the hopes and fears of all of the years, all the centuries, all the people, everyone, right, of, of the whole history of this world culminates in that. Right. And, and our stories are drawn up into it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then he goes on. Uh, so talk a little bit more about some of the other things he says in this quote about the the divine paradox and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he's talking about death, um, that what seems to be the end of life, um, surrendering uh, of life is actually, um, the, the font from which, um, life uh, flows. I mean, that, that is the the great paradox of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection that die. Um, it's how he talks about a grain of wheat falling into the earth and, and, you know, growing into, into a great harvest. I, you know, I would never accuse, <laughs> um, of Tolkien of being a neoplatonist, mm-hmm. but <laughs> there's almost a neoplatonic concept going on here when he talks about that everything that we loved in this world, right. That we seek in our earthly relationships love and faith and joy, all the things that we sort of love in this world and that we seek in this world find their fulfillment in that. And it's a little bit like his good friend, uh, C.S. Lewis. Who is said, much more platonic. Much more thought, platonic. Yeah. Who said when they get to Aslan's country, the reason you love the things in Aslan's country, the reason you love things on earth is they reminded you of the things in Aslan's country, which is a pretty mm-hmm. neoplatonic take on it. But mm-hmm. Tolkien is a little bit saying something like that. The, the things that we love in, 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 our, in our earthly relationships, love and fidelity and care and all these, all, all in a sense are foretastes of the ultimate love that we find in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And then in this letter to his son, having sort of stressed the significance of the Eucharist, he starts giving his son advice and pick up, pick up that of that when he talks about the only cure for sagging or fainting faith. Yeah, he gets practical with it. Um, th- there's a, a temptation, I think, um, that if our faith is, is sagging or if we're not really feeling up to it of staying away from the sacraments, of not going to the mass um, because we're not... Um, you know, feeling the desire to, and, and he's essentially saying the opposite of that, that, that if, if your faith is flagging, then this is the cure for it. This is what you ought to do. Um, the, the sacrament um, perfects our faith um, and completes it. it. As we've talked about before, it's both the source and the summit of it. So we, we gain from Christ the, the grace to, to live out our faith by receiving, um, by participating in the mass. Um, and, and he's really here, um, recommending, uh, frequent participation, yeah. which is something that the church has often recommended. Absolutely. We'll get to that in a second, yeah. but he gives a rationale here in this, this thing, when he talks about the only cure for sagging or fainting faith is communion, just as you mm-hmm. well explained it. But then he says, uh, though always itself perfect and complete and inviolate, the blessed sacrament does not operate completely and once and for all in any of us. Right. You know, so uh, when we are baptized, baptismal regeneration is a once, once and all effect, right? You don't have to keep getting rebaptized. Mm-hmm. Confirmation is a once and for all effect. We don't have to keep reconfirming our faith. Holy orders sure. is a once or and ma- for all. Or marriage. Or marriage. But communion is, while it is perfect in itself, it's something that uh, needs, that, that, how does he put it here, that it, 
must be continuous and it grows by exercise, that the more we do it, the better off we are. Because it's perfect on Christ's ends, of course, but it's not perfect on my end. I am not in complete communion with Christ yet. Um, you know, pray, pray God I will be when, when I die or when Christ returns, but um, he is bringing me more deeply into communion with him through the blessed sacrament, through the repeated reception of the blessed sacrament. When we did the book club episode on Tolkien's novels, mm-hmm. you made mention at that time of some of the symbolism mm-hmm. or signs in Tolkien's novels of Catholicism. And this notion of taking, the, taking communion uh, continuously and, and frequently uh, to sustain us and to sustain our faith had a parallel or a sign or a manifestation in his novels. Yeah. So there's the, the Lembus um, bread that the elves um, use themselves. And then in, in special cases, they, they give to others. Um, so they, they give it to the fellowship of the ring in, in the Lord of the Rings. And yeah, it sustains them in this, in this special and, and supernatural way in a way that other food can't sustain them. And you only need uh, once a day. Right. Right. It's daily bread. It's daily bread for the journey. And, and it's given to them by a lady. Yes. Uh, so, you know, I remember somebody, uh, somebody said, come on, can you make this more obvious? Right. So that, that, that he says, you know, communion is something that we have to keep taking because I like the way you put it. Well, it's perfect on Christ's end. It, it, our imperfection needs to be continually touched to that, which is perfect. Mm-hmm. So then he says, so frequency then is of the highest effect. This is the part where he's recommending to his son. And then I love this quote about (laughs) seven times a week is more nourishing than seven times at intervals. So in other words, you could go once a week for seven weeks, or you could skip mass and go once a month for seven months. But he said seven times in one week, once a day Mm -hmm. uh, is more nourishing back to that notion of nourishment. And then I love this part (laughs) where he tells his son to go find basically the worst parish that he can find (laughs) in the diocese. Um, This is just fantastic. It's like, and it's an inversion of how we would normally look for a church. So if we have the opportunity to visit um, multiple parishes, say geographically around where we live, he recommends finding in some sense the worst <laughs> parish you can find. You want to talk about that? Yeah, it, it's very oh, And inter- his definition of how you define Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is pretty, pretty comic just reading about his own, you know, preferences and prejudices in some cases. Well, read that, um, read that. Yeah, sure, and, sure. And unpack um, that for us. Uh, make your communion in circumstances that affront your taste. Choose a snuffling or gabbling priest or a proud <laughs> and vulgar friar and a church full of un, of the usual bourgeois crowd, ill-behaved children from those <laughs> who yell to those products of Catholic schools who the moment the tabernacle is opened, sit back and yawn. Open-necked and dirty youths women in trousers and often with hair both unkempt and uncovered go to communion with them and pray for them (laughs) that's awesome so so you know uh look if you i've tried to explain this to people and friends of mine or others who are considering catholicism or converting catholicism i mean this is one of the things that was so different i think about uh, when I think back my years in the, the Protestant church growth movement, the evangelical church movement, the, the whole idea is that we could spread the gospel more effectively and lead people to Christ more effectively if it was attractive. 
So if we had attractive pastors who were fantastic speakers with attractive musicians who did first rate music, and if all of these things that that sort of attraction model mm-hmm. and and what I think Tolkien is saying here is the problem is if you go to a parish or you go to mass, go to a service because you want to hear the most erudite and glittering and persuasive sermon, right? Because mm-hmm. the guy's a great public speaker. And then if it's full of the right sort of people, you know, attractive people, smart people. Now his business with trousers and the whole bit is hilarious, but we might just sort of project that today and say, well, I want to go to pe- you know, a, a parish where the people up and down the row are attractive and smart and, and, um, cool. You know, cool. Yeah. yeah the cool. kind of people I want to hang around with. Right. Yeah. Well, then it starts to become about you and you start to, be, to become convinced that you're there because you, you're a smart, attractive, you know, uh, mm-hmm. a plus kind of person. Yeah. It, it's interesting. You're, you're talking about, um, it kind of from the, the supply side of, of the, the churches wanting to make themselves attractive. It, it's, it's a consumerist model because right. they're trying to create a product that people will want. And then the individual Christian is a consumer. Um, I've, I've even many times heard people t- talk about church shopping or sometimes right. they'll talk about church dating if they want to use a different metaphor mm-hmm. um, of I need to go find the church that's right for me or where right. where God is calling me. And of course, that's a that's a better way of looking at it than just, you know, where I want. But um, it, it's it's fundamentally operating from a framework of if if I find the place that's right for me, then that's the goal. And, and that that's what I'm looking for. Whereas what what Tolkien is where he's coming from is Christ is present in the blessed sacrament and will give himself to us and, and will give us his graces regardless of, you know, what kind of schmucks are actually sitting in the pews. And that doesn't mean that, you know, everybody's off the hook and shouldn't try to be a good Christian, but it does mean that it's it's not dependent on us. It's not dependent on the people around us. Um, and it's, it's not, um, a, a good way to go about it. If I just need to find my, my people, the the kind of people that I want to be around. Yeah. You know, and when you talk about the consumerist model and making a product for consumers, there's a whole thing in, in consumer marketing, right? Where you create, uh, what's, it's been called various things over the years, the, you know, the premium brand or the bespoke, I think is now like the cool thing. It's the bespoke product where by buying it, you show that you are a discriminator by buying this brand of mm-hmm. yogurt or this brand of, you know, sports car or this, uh, right. label of clothes simply by purchasing that premium or bespoke product, it, it signals that you are sort of an elite and discriminating person. And so I think what he's warning here is that not only do we want people to do, in a sense, the right thing for the wrong reasons, because you can do the right thing, the right thing. You can mm-hmm. go to mass, which is the right thing to do, but you mm-hmm. can go to mass for the wrong reasons because you want to hear the glittering sermon or be around the right set of people or show that you're part of the right set of people or you're one of them or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that'd be doing the right thing for the wrong reason, but also it becomes flattery to you and it becomes about you. Right. And I think, I think, so what he's saying is now there's a line, I can't ever remember who, who said this, but there was, there was some, there was some saint, I think it was, it was English saint, I think, uh, you'll remember, who decided to convert to Catholicism and deeply upset their 
their parents, their Anglican uh, aristocratic parents, and sure. said, "But, but, son, now you're going to be when you when you go to mass, you'll be kneeling next to the help." Right. <laughs> I can't remember who that was, but it was like, and that was the whole thing. You go, well, now I'm going to go to this mass and be next to you know the untouchables, and Tolkien really says, "Hey, that's going to mass and making the focus on the Eucharist." I mean, that's what this comes down to. Mm-hmm. What this episode is about is when you go there for the Eucharist, not for the, you know, the best preacher in town, not for the best music in town, not to be around the best people in town, but you go there for the Eucharist. And by, and by, he, he recommends to his son by going to this, this, you know, this, uh, this, the substandard parish or a parish mm-hmm. that offends your, your taste and sensibilities. In a sense, you're humbling yourself. To come before the Eucharist, right? Right. Yeah. Well, and, and then the next line where he he kind of gives his rationale yeah, ahead, is really go interesting. Read, go ahead and read that. He says, "It will be just the same, or better than that, as a mass said beautifully by a visibly holy man and shared by a few devout and decorous people." So you can see that he's not he's not denigrating these things. Uh, obviously, he he thinks that a mass said beautifully is a good thing. It's good for the priest to be holy. It's good for the people to be right. devout and decorous. Like he's not saying that these are are bad things. Right. But he's saying that if if we're just going for that, right. all of those good things that are that are still secondary goods to Christ in the sacrament, then we are seeking after the wrong thing. Right. I mean, I've 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 met and worked with you know uh, people who are converts or converting to Catholicism who'll say, "Well, if I'm going to go, I want to go to." You know, I, I met somebody who said, I'll go to mass when I, when, when I can go to Rome with you and go to St. Peter's. And you go, why wouldn't you go to mass down the block? Well, I'd rather save it for like the real thing. And you go, but that is the real thing, what happens mm-hmm. down the block. And I think, you know, like you say, Tolkien isn't here arguing for crummy preaching or mm-hmm. crummy, you know, badly dressed people or unruly children. That's not his mm-hmm. point. But his point is it's about humbling yourself and, and, and doing the right thing for the right reasons and mm-hmm. being there for the right reasons. And I think, uh, and not deceiving yourself or flattering yourself or, or making about you. I, I think that's, that's pretty powerful. And, um, and it's, it's mine. It, I, I can think of a number of folks that I know who were Protestants who went to a Catholic mass and said, the sermon was boring. The guy was a bad preacher mm-hmm. and this wouldn't fly in the, in the Protestant church. Cause the whole point in the center of it is the, is, is the, is the sermon. And I go, right. But, um, I'm not there for this. I mean, ultimately I am there to hear the word of God and hear the word of thing, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to judge the effectiveness on the mass by whether or not the the priest was a fantastic public speaker. Right. This isn't an excuse for mediocrity. It's not right. to say that the church should just phone in everything else as long as the Eucharist is there, Mm-mm. but it is, it is drawing our attention to the thing that truly matters. And, and, and in some sense, I think this is m- maybe a, a way of explaining it that, that might, um, that that might be something that a Protestant could relate to is that it, the 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 important thing is the grace that God is giving us, um, and yes, of, of course, hearing the word or hearing it preached are, are ways that that God works, but ultimately it's it's Christ's action that is important, not our action, and and Christ's action par excellence is His presence in the sacrament. And Tolkien sort of lands this uh, quote. Uh, in the last sentence on that point when he says it could not be 
worse than the mess of the feeding of the 5,000, mm-hmm. right? In which the important thing is the 5,000 were fed, right? But it was something of a, apparently it seemed like something of a disorganized mess. The people were, the, the people were there for the wrong reasons. The, the, the disciples didn't get it. They bungled the thing in many ways, but mm-hmm. they took direction and they did it. And the important thing was that God fed his people. Mm-hmm. So again, we're not arguing, and I don't think Tolkien, I, to your point, is arguing that everything be crummy for crummy's sake and everything should be as excellent as it can be, but we should not go there b- flattering ourselves, believing that. And if you can find something that humbles you, it's always useful to have something that humbles you. Right. This is essentially a, a recommendation for a kind of mortification. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's saints who would say, well, I'm going to go to a mass in a beautiful cathedral done by, you know, uh, well done, but I'm going to wear a hair shirt, mm-hmm. you know, uh, when I do it under my clothes, um, because I want to make sure that I'm there and humbled. So anyway, uh, fantastic quote by Tolkien here about the one great thing to love in life. And again, that puts all of it into context that despite all the struggles of life, despite everything else, despite whatever is going on in your parish and whether the kids are screaming or the women are wearing trousers. They're probably my kids. <laughs> and the women are wearing trousers with unkempt hair or whatever the case it is. Uh, the one great thing is to love the Eucharist. Now, Tolkien had another quote that mentioned the Eucharist mm-hmm. and let's turn to that one. Uh, and this is the one where he talks about the papacy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love this. I love this one as a, a sort of follow up on that. So this is also in one of his letters. And he said, I myself am convinced by the Petrine claims. So in other words, he, he, he believed the claim of apostolic succession. And from, specifically from Peter. From, from yeah. yeah, you know, Petrine, Petrine succession from Peter to the, to the Pope in Rome, which his friend C.S. Lewis could not get over. In a lot of ways, Lewis was willing to accept many aspects of Catholic doctrine, but could never wrap his mind around that. However, he says, I'm convinced by that. Um, he goes, not looking around the world, does there seem to be much doubt which is the true church? the temple of the spirit dying, but living corrupt, but holy self-reforming and self-arising. So he says, you know, I believe the Petrine claims. I believe that the claims of the Catholic church and that the Pope is, is the successor of Peter and that it, the Catholic church is the true church. Then he says, but for me, that church of which the Pope is the acknowledged head on earth has as chief claim that it is the one and has and still does ever defended the blessed sacrament, given it the most honor and put it as Christly clearly intended, as Christ clearly intended in the prime place. You, you, you want to say something about that? Because I think this is fascinating. We did an episode, or I did a couple episodes on the papacy mm-hmm. and uh, why Catholics have a Pope and the, the functions of the papacy and the claims of the papacy. But this is fascinating. His notion that, then in a sense, the, the most important thing that the Pope does is preserve the Eucharist and its distribution to the world. Yeah. I mean, I think it really gets at what is, what is the most fundamental purpose of the priesthood? Because of course the Pope is, is a bishop um, and he is, he's the leader of the bishops and the bishops and priests exist in order to, to minister Christ to us in the sacraments and, and most especially um, the Eucharist, that they are the, the means that, that Jesus chose himself in order to perpetuate his presence among us until he comes again. And so the Pope, as, as the head of the whole church, 
he he perpetuates that. He he keeps that going. Um, of course, he himself is a priest and consecrates the Eucharist, but he he is the leader of the bishops, and the bishops are in authority over the priests, and and that th- keeps throughout the world the Eucharist being offered and being available um, to to the laity, to the whole of the faithful, to participate in um, and to receive, to be fed, um, as we talked about earlier, to be sustained by it um, daily or weekly on on Sunday, um, so that it it keeps us in Christ um, and uh, to the end of our earthly journey, and then the whole church until the end of time when when Christ returns. You know. In that episode that I did on the papacy, it was a conversation with Ed mm-hmm. and Ed was asking me about why Catholics have a Pope. And one of the things and what, what the limits of papal fallibility and infallibility are and, you know, all these kinds of things. And one of the things that I, that I said was that there's a way to think of the papacy, the mandate of the papacy mm-hmm. as sort of a, a negative mandate in the sense that the Pope isn't there to invent stuff. Sure. The Pope is there to, to, to prevent, guard the deposit, to guard the deposit, to prevent error, to make sure that the, the mission of the church is not corrupted in a sense. He's not there to make stuff up. He's there to put, to, to make sure stuff isn't made up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when Tolkien says this, the, the kind of the third, uh, part of that quote is he says, feed my sheep was his last charge to St. Peter, which I think is super interesting, right? I mean, the the last thing that he says to St. Peter before the ascension, after the resurrection, before the ascension, three times he says to Peter, feed my sheep. Mm-hmm. Now, this is super interesting because as former Protestants, you and I know that in the Protestant world, that is always interpreted as preaching. Mm-hmm. Feed my sheep means keep preaching about the Bible. Keep, or, yeah, it, it's symbolically interpreted. Yeah, yeah it's not, symbolic, as, a, not it, as a literal feed. Right, literally, it's symbolic interpreted as feed my sheep when he says it Peter three times. The standard sort of Protestant doctrine on that <laughs> is that means we're supposed to, you know, preach the word, preach the word, preach the word, teach on scripture, teach on scripture, teach on scripture, because that's what people need. They don't need, we, we would have rationalized that as, you know, people, don't, uh, men do not live on bread alone, but by the word of God. So feed my sheep is a reference to keep, in a sense, shoveling the word of God into the, into the, you know, you know, a food tray of the animals or something. Right. So, so it's interesting that Tolkien here asserts a Catholic position on that. He says, feed my sheep was the last charge to St. Peter. And since his words are always to be first to be understood literally. That's a, a whole interesting thing too. Cause you know, the church always thinks of four um, senses of scripture and, you know, the allegorical, the anagogical and, you know, whatnot. Mm. And I think it's interesting here. He says, well, you know, your default position when you read something, you start by just assuming that what it says is what it means, unless there's a reason to think otherwise. Right. And he said, so when he says, feed my sheep, Tolkien, Tolkien says, well, I, I'm just going to start by assuming feed my sheep means, you know, feeding my food. sheep. Yeah. And he says, I suppose them to refer primarily to the bread of life. And again, he doesn't see the bread of life as being uh, preach the Bible. He sees, give them the bread of life, which is Christ's person. And then I, he has this really amazing quote. And you and I had talked uh, in a previous episode about uh, history and evangelizing through history, but I, I love this. He says, it was against this at the Western European revolt or the Reformation. I love that Tolkien says, you can call it the Reformation, but what it really was is a revolt of Western, and I would say Northern, Northwestern Europe sure. against 
the papacy. He says it was really launched against the blasphemous fable of the mass, as the Protestants called it. Uh, and the whole faith works thing was merely a red herring. They didn't like that the, the, the mass, in a sense, was given by or controlled by or regulated by the Pope through the entire magisterial uh, hierarchy of the church or through the hierarchy of the church. And so, therefore, they rebelled against it. And so, Tolkien's sitting here arguing that, that the Pope's number one job is feed my sheep. Because he's the successor of St. Peter, and three times, the last three times that Jesus spoke to Peter, he said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. The Pope is supposed to go out into the world and feed the sheep and have the sheep fed through the ministry of the church, distributed to the priests of which, as you say, the Pope is the head. And as he said, the Western European revolt, AKA the Reformation was a rebellion against that. Mm-hmm. Um, now as somebody, and, and the faith, whole faith works thing is a red herring. I'm curious to hear your reaction to Tolkien saying that. Corey. Yeah. It, it's an interesting statement. I'm sure plenty of people, both, both historians and, and, you know, just lay Protestants would, would probably take an issue with it um, because there is faith works is very much discussed in that world. And of course it was an element of, of Luther's um, original um, problems with the church, a a major element. But I, I think he is right to emphasize how important the disagreement about the mass was for the Reformation and continues to be um, in the in the disagreements between Protestants and Catholics, um, because as we've said elsewhere, the the mass or the Eucharist is the the central um, thing in Catholic spirituality in in the church. The church is always drawing our attention back to it. Um, it it's how we're supposed to orient our week, or if we're able to go to daily mass, our, our day, that, it, that it's the source and, and summit. And that's simply not the case, even in sort of higher church Protestant denominations that do have more of a, a liturgical tradition or, or a higher emphasis on the Eucharist. It's, it's not the source and summit there. It is something that they do because Christ commanded it. Um, they don't do it as often though, because it's not considered to be as important. It's not as Tolkien talks about in, in that other quote. Um, it's not, uh, something that is a cure for a sagging faith. Right. Well, I mean, and to his point again, this is probably a whole other episode about the history of the Reformation, but, mm-hmm. and you and I did do an episode, uh, about, uh, Calvinism and Lutheranism. Right. Right. But I, I, I'll, Tolkien's assertion here on two points resonate with me. Number one, that the primary, the primary instruction of the papacy is to, of, of Peter and therefore his successors is to feed the sheep mm-hmm. and they're fed the sheep by the sacraments. And so the primary responsibility of the successor of Peter is to make sure that the sacraments properly feed the people of the world. And secondly, when the Protestant revolt or reformation or whatever it was happened. Uh, even the faith works thing was, a, if you say that I'm saved by my faith alone, priesthood of all believers and all that, then I don't need priests. And if I don't need right. priests and I don't need bishops and I certainly don't need a Pope. It does become a, a central question about authority. Right. And that, uh, however Luther got to that point, it is really the point of contention is that I don't, if, 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 if the sacraments are efficacious in and of themselves, then I need priests to minister them and I need bishops and I need a pope to do it. But if I can do it on my own, in a sense, through faith, then all of that becomes, uh, in a sense, 
uh, superfluous mm-hmm. or unnecessary or maybe uh, secondary. And that this is really what drove it. So anyway, I, I think the key point here is that for me is Tolkien's, I think, insight and assertion that a primary task of the successor of Peter mm-hmm. is the right administration of the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist. Right. Because that is the primary, you know, uh, the primary uh, role, you could say, of the church of which of which he is ahead is to bring Christ to the people. And of course, everything else that the church very rightly does, its charitable works and, and evangelization and the preaching of the word flow from that. Which brings us to the occasion of the Eucharistic revival uh, in mm-hmm. the church, in America at least, and I think a, a renewed emphasis of it around the world where even Pope Francis has used this notion of incoherence and the incoherence of the practice of the Eucharist in the world and that as the successor of Peter, he wants there to be a Eucharistic coherence, which you know flows down to the Catholic bishops, which flows down to the Catholic parishes in America, which flows down to why we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. So it's time to bring some coherence to our understanding of this and that the Pope calls us to that and that that is um, important because it is the one great thing to love in our lives and it is the one great thing in life. Mm-hmm. And, and it should order uh, and coordinate. Um, it should be the, the, uh, the ordering principle of our lives is our connection with Christ through the Eucharist. Yeah. And, and I think his perspective on the Eucharist is helpful to keep in mind as we are launching into this revival, because the Eucharist is what ties us to Christ and what therefore ties us to the church and to the hierarchy, ultimately to the Pope. So that goes to the, the one quote, but then the, the, the first one that we discussed about it being so central and important to our lives, I mean, it, it goes without saying that that's a, a focus of the revival. But then what he recommends as a spiritual practice of, of seeking out um, yeah. the sacrament in places that you wouldn't choose if you were just going by your own tastes is, is I think, something that we really can do. And, and there are various ways that you can do it. It isn't just, you know, trying to find the crummiest parish in town. Um, to a certain extent, I think it's it's resisting the temptation um, to do that church shopping um, that is is so much kind of the default position of our cultural Protestant, but also I think uh, a lot of a lot of Catholics think like this as well. Um, maybe it's just going to your local parish, going to the nearest one where your neighbors are. It might not be where the cool kids hang out, but Christ is there. He is offering himself in the mass. Maybe you don't like the priest. Maybe he's not the, the greatest preacher. But if if we are focusing on Christ um, and on receiving him and that being what ultimately sustains our faith and brings us through the journey of life, then I, I think we can all, you know, chew on this and, and think about and pray about how that might look in our own lives. Reminds me of something the prophet Micah said in the Old Testament, um, Micah 6, 8. Uh, he has shown you, O man, and what is required of you to, to, to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And, in, and when we think about the Mass and seeking out the Mass and the Eucharist, um, the doing of justice, we say it is, in the Mass, we say right there, it is right and just for us to come and give thanks, which is what mm. the Eucharist means, thanksgiving. Uh, and uh, loving mercy is to come the Mass and the penitential acts in the Mass, uh, where, we, where we humble and where we, where we come with penitence and then 
we humble ourselves. Right. And of course, all of that has to flow out from there. We then have to live with, with yeah. justice and mercy in our lives. That That's what the grace we receive in the Mass is, is for in order to make us Christ. Which is all back to Tolkien's point about mm-hmm. frequency. Um, because while well, the Mass is perfect, we're imperfect. And that's why going you know every day, if you can, or as often as is humanly possible for you to go, in a sense, it, it I hate to use this word, but it recharges your batteries. And it... Mm-hmm. And it and it gives you a the sort of like in a video game the power up to go out and keep keep doing it. Well, sure. I, or I mean, it is it literally is food, and that's yeah. how food works. Is we don't right. eat once a week if we can help it. We right. we eat more frequently because it regenerates our bodies. It gives us the energy that we right. need to to do our daily tasks. And and the Eucharist is spiritual food that gives us the energy to to live as Christ in the world. Okay, Corey, last, uh, last word on Tolkien, the Eucharist and the one great thing. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just worth reflecting on that. The Eucharist is the center of our faith and that, um, however we are practicing the faith, how frequently we're going to mass or where we're going to mass, um, that we need to examine our motives. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And we continue with the Eucharistic Revival um, episodes here mm-hmm. on Considering Catholicism. And you want to give a little play, plug for the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization and what we're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. So we, um, beginning in the, the fall of 2022, but continuing, uh, we're going to have um, classes and resources um, both for adults and for families with kids um, on the Eucharist and how to, to live um from the Eucharist. Um, we're going to have a class for adults called the miracle of the Eucharist, which is, which will particularly investigate, um, and delve into, um, the, the extraordinary thing that Christ does in making himself present, um, in the, in the sacrament. And then we're going to have, um, a, a, a collection of resources for families to use, to help, um, to engage better, um, in the mass and to really center the life of the family around the practice of participation in the mass. Um, so go to lanecatholic.org, um, in the coming weeks and months, and that'll be available there. Well, there you go. Lanecatholic.org. And of course, always considering Catholicism.com. And if you want to learn more, uh, go there or shoot me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. And uh, listen to Tolkien's advice. Go to Mass today. (laughs) Yes. Amen. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.